Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm really excited to have with me today, once again, Dr. David Berman. Now, listeners may remember that Dr. Berman has been on the show one time before, but at that time, he was but a fellow. He is now an attending. He's an assistant professor of anesthesiology and OB anesthesiology here at Johns Hopkins and is a fantastic person and physician, and we are going to talk about an area of interest of his, vascular access, Talk about some of the um, both principles of vascular access and some of the potential pitfalls. And it is a pleasure to have him here. Dave, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Now, before we start, listeners, remember, we are looking for our first ever ACRAC intern. This is an unpaid internship, but one with a lot of potential to have some fun and be a big part of the ACRAC endeavor. I have already received some really great applications, and if you are one of the people who sent them in, don't worry. I have not decided against you. I'm just going to leave the application open for another couple weeks, let some uh, other people, if they want to, decide to apply, and then I will select the first ACRAC intern. Also, have gotten some nice design options, so if you are a designer or just have a little talent in that realm and you want to take a stab at a new ACRAC logo... Please send whatever ideas you have. Um, you can send applications for the intern spot and ideas for the logo to ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C dot com. Remember, if you're applying for the intern spot, send along your CV and a short less than one page description of why you think you would be good for the position. Make sure to mention any IT experience or media type, Twitter type experience that you have. That's for sure some of the stuff that I'm going to need help with. All right, let's get on to the main event and turn back to Dr. Dave Berman. So why don't you give me some background? What got you interested in this and why do we care about this topic? 
So when I was a medical student, I, I got thinking about this and I realized that it's an important topic, but it's especially an important topic for us because we're the only specialty who regularly places and uses the lines that we place. And so we have a vested interest in how they work. Some of my friends in other specialties don't really know how to put in IVs. And even if they do, they don't regularly push their own medications. And so for us, I sort of like to think of us as anesthesiologists as a one-stop shop. We're the physician. We write a prescription. Then we're the pharmacist. We fill that prescription. We're a nurse or a bedside care provider. We administer the medications. And then we're a physician. We monitor the response, and then we repeat that whole cycle again and again. There are those who call us titrationologists. But in order to do that, you really need to have a good vascular access device and make sure that it works. And of course, when we think about choosing the correct access, we always have to think about three things. We want to think about the patient, the procedure, and the surgeon. Obviously, it's nice to have vascular access. One of my former faculty used to call it like money in the bank. You can never have too much, but it's also important to know not just how much you have, but where it's located and what it's doing for you. <laughs> I like that. Tell me a little about the surgeon piece of it. Why do, why do you put surgeon as one of the important things there? Well, obviously, this is a little controversial, but there are some surgeons with whom I'll do a partial nephrectomy with an 18 and some surgeons with whom I'll do a partial nephrectomy with two 14s and an A-line. And some of it depends on the patient's anatomy, the vascular location of whatever you're doing, um, and some of it just depends on maybe recency bias, prior experiences, um, hearsay, and some of that is important. Obviously, we're not all interchangeable uh, as anesthesiologists or as surgeons. And so there are different uh, practice parameters and different groups of surgeons who get involved in different types of problems. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. And I will say also that uh, you know communication with surgeons around this can be really important. I like to talk to the surgeon the night before, uh, regardless of the case. And there are times when I didn't realize how involved the vascular vasculature was. Maybe it wasn't so clear on the scans, but the surgeon says, oh, no, you know, this thing is wrapped around the aorta. And uh, I absolutely think we're going to want a central line and an A-line, right, as opposed to, oh, well, it was really superficial. I think we'll be fine with a couple of peripheral IVs. So that conversation can, with a surgeon can be very helpful too. And the other uh, – one of, the, of my main other practice areas is hepatobiliary surgery. And so when we're doing Whipples and I'll email the surgeons the night before, sometimes I'll look at the imaging and uh, on CT, it, it doesn't look as if there's significant vascular involvement. And then when you talk with the surgeons a little more, if one of the surgeons who I work with – regularly asks me to put in a cordis when I was planning on putting in two good peripherals, then I, I not only obviously do I put in much bigger access, but I also think to myself that this may be a, a setup for a very different case. I may not necessarily be thinking about extubation or might be thinking about a very different dispo option for the patient. Right. I can't emphasize that enough. If you're out there and you're never talking to your surgeons uh, the night before via email or phone or something, it's a huge benefit to try to make time for that, even if it's just shooting off a quick email and exchanging a couple back and forth. All right. So, Dave, let's talk about the indications for uh, different kinds of access. Uh, how do you decide? Well, obviously, the, the main reason we put in vascular access devices is because they're awesome. Um, so there's a few different reasons to put in vascular access device. Obviously, near and dear to our hearts is medication administration. And so that means uh, standard stuff that we administer, sedative, hypnotics, paralytics, all that fun stuff, but also a uh, question of 
any additional caustic substances, like whether your patient's going to be on high-dose vasopressors or you're giving medications that could be harmful if infiltrated or very high osmotic concentrations. Um, we also think about blood and fluid administration. And then uh, another different reason why we would put in an access device is um, for hemodialysis or plasmapheresis. In those cases, typically we need two lumens, one for an in and one for an out. And so they're two-way streets. So in these cases, we'll often need a dual lumen port. We can sometimes put in lines for nutritional access, whether that's short-term or long-term. And then there's some more esoteric lines that we can put in, some for monitoring like a, a pulmonary artery catheter, as well as some targeted temperature devices that we can use for intravascular temperature management. Great. All right. So I know we're going to get in later to specific indications for different kinds of lines, so we'll wait on that. But tell me a little bit about the physics of the kind of flow you get through these catheters, because I know this is a really interesting area that you've been doing some work in. So obviously, we want laminar flow. And so for us, laminar flow is associated with lower resistance and greater bore of tubing and catheter. So Poiseuille's law talks about the four different uh, factors that impact flow rates, length, viscosity, radius, and pressure differential. So resistance increases with longer catheters, with higher viscosity solutions, with smaller radius, but that's to the fourth power, and also with a pressure differential, which explains why, for instance, if you're transfusing through a 24-gauge peripheral IV, it's going to be extraordinarily slow because you have a small radius catheter that has a high viscosity fluid going through it. It may get a little faster if you increase the pressure differential or make the catheter a little shorter, but it's certainly never going to get as fast as a 14-gauge peripheral. So in general, factors that impact flow rates, we want short and fat lines. So I like to say that if you had to choose between Chris Farley and LeBron James for a vascular catheter, Chris Farley is always the winner. <laughs> Farley every day. All right. So we hear a lot of different scales used, things like French and gauge. Uh, tell me what all that means. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and on the in-training exam, a lot of people say that this stuff is made to explode anesthesiologist heads. Um, they're there to make our lives a little more difficult. But when we talk about French and gauge, it's important to know not just how they're derived, but what the number actually means. So in the French scale, it's just the outer diameter of the catheter in millimeters times three which means that if you have a bigger number French, you have a larger catheter. With a gauge scale, it's how many catheters you can line up next to each other and get one standard measurement. And so in that case, a larger number is actually a smaller catheter. So a 24-gauge IV means you need 24 of them to line up next to each other to be the same width as 14, 14 gauges next to each other. So smaller numbers engage mean bigger catheters. Smaller numbers in French mean smaller catheters. does seem like it was designed to be confusing. There is an online calculator. It's on Cornell's website. And so you can calculate out, if you type in the French number, it will calculate out the equivalent in gauge. However, they're not super intuitive. And the backwards scaling thing makes things really annoying to convert back and forth. Yeah, I agree. So I feel like in our lives, we rarely use French, right? We deal, at least with peripheral IVs, we're always talking about gauge, um, but it is, an, it is confusing when it comes up. So there are different kinds of lines. Do you want to just define for us what makes a certain type of line that type of line? Like what's a central line? Why is it central? So 
It's important to know that a central line means anything inside of a large central vein, which we typically define as the femoral, the jugular, the subclavian, so that something that leads directly to the SVC or the IVC. Whereas a peripheral is a, diagnosis, is a definition of exclusion. It's anything not in a central vein. But it's important to remember that where lines enter the body doesn't necessarily dictate where they end up. You can have a patient who's got a line in their arm that's used for chronic uh, nutritional access that is put in central, that's actually, sorry, that's put in peripherally, a pick line, but is actually central. Whereas you can have a line that's in someone's external jugular, it looks like it's going in their neck, but it really is a peripheral line. Yeah, I think that's really important to point out. What about peripheral IVs? What do we need to know about peripheral IVs? So it's actually very helpful unless you're colorblind because the colors have maximal flow rates on the back of the packaging. So if you have a 20-gauge IV, you know that your maximal flow rate is around 60 mLs a minute. This assumes, of course, that you're having flow rates under ideal conditions. There's no resistance from valves or small veins, and you're using crystalloid with a relatively low viscosity. The maximal flow rate that you can get through a 14-gauge IV is around 350 mLs a minute. And those are typically the catheters that we put in um, in typical OR cases. And that was what gauge, did you say? So. You can obviously as small as a 24 or as high as a 14. Um, 14 gauge will get you approximately 350 mLs a minute. That's 14. Okay. And uh, 16 will get you a little over 200. 18 is a little over 100. And then a 20 is around 60 mLs a minute. And when we say maximum flow rate, is that, uh, you said under ideal conditions, but also without any external pressure? That's just that's right. hanging so that's in a bag. That's right. Hanging to gravity. Okay. But that's measured in, vi- in vitro. Uh, model that's not connected to a vein, that has no resistance whatsoever. So it's sort of ideal flow conditions through that catheter. That assumes no resistance before or after. Great. All right. So gives you an idea at least of the uh, rank order, even if those numbers aren't going to play out like that in real life. Um, All right. And then are there any kinds of uh, specialized peripheral lines that we should think about? So one big class is PIC catheters. PIC stands for peripherally inserted central catheters, PIC catheters. They're useful for long-term infusion therapy. So for patients who need antibiotics at home or they're on home inotrope therapy or they need uh, TPN at home, they're very long catheters and they're extraordinarily small. They may be uh, two and a half French in each lumen. It may be a dual lumen or a three or four French single lumen. They're very, very long. They're typically 30 to 50 centimeters long, and they're very short, uh, very uh, narrow. And so what that means is that the flow is extraordinarily slow. We also have midlines, which is essentially a peripheral IV that's just longer than a regular peripheral. And this is different at each hospital, but it, I sort of think of it as a short pick line. So it's useful for intermediate vascular access and intermediate therapy. Different institutions will leave them in for four to six weeks at a time. They're not as fast as a dedicated shorter peripheral, but if you have a patient who's very difficult vascular access, at a lot of institutions, midlines can be left in for the duration of hospitalization. We now, also Sorry, let me just go back for a second. The pick uh, we had kind of listed here under peripherals, but a pick, as you said before, if it ends up in a central vein, is actually a central line. That's right. So it, it's 
we're talking about it with peripheral lines because it's inserted peripherally, but it is actually a central line. Yeah. So a lot of medications that we try to avoid giving peripherally, things like TPN, high-dose vasopressors, um, calcium chloride, etc., you could potentially give through a PICC line pretty easily because it is central. Great. All right. Um, so we talked about PICs, we talked about midlines, and then what about a RIC? The RIC line is what really gets my heart going. Yes. Um, they're very large peripheral IVs. For some reason, the manufacturer has them uh, sized in seven or eight and a half French sizes. And just to give you an idea, an eight and a half French line is about an 11 gauge. It's a 10.8 gauge. So it's significantly larger than a 14. And it's usually placed just like a in central introducer. It's placed over a dilator. So you start off with a regular angiocath. You put in a wire through the angiocath. Take the angiocath out so you just leave a wire in the vessel and then put the dilator with the catheter in a vein. And a lot of experimental studies in, in vivo and in vitro models have shown that you can get flow rates of a hair under a liter a minute, so 700 to 900 mLs a minute. Obviously, we need straight veins and you probably should put them in larger vascular sites, um, but – they are the fastest peripheral lines we have, and they're probably the fastest traditional vascular access devices we have. Yeah, and I, I would add you want to be sure that thing is in if you're going to use it for the kind of volume that you can use it for because you put you know uh, a liter a minute into the uh, soft tissue of the arm, and you're going to regret it afterwards. So you want to make sure it's in there. And so – uh, what a lot of people do, when I put in RIC lines, I, I typically put them in under ultrasound. And not only do you see the wire in the vessel, but you can also find uh, veins upstream of your catheter and inject agitated saline and see it in the lumen on ultrasound. Especially if you're putting it on a pressurized device, the line will continue to flow until you have compartment syndrome. Yep. And actually, one of my residents, uh, one of our residents, uh, showed me uh, a few months ago um, I had never seen this, but he actually – essentially he did a little bit of an echo after he had put the RIC in, injected agitated saline through the RIC, and then watched uh, the RV on the echo to see the agitated saline uh, come into it. And that was a pretty good sign that it was you know, in the vessel. It's actually helpful. You can kill two birds with one stone by doing a bubble study through a RIC line. Yep, absolutely. All right. So we talked about kind of at least peripherally inserted lines. That was the pick, the midline, and the RIC. Now let's talk about central lines. Where, what are the sites where we can place a central line? So traditionally there are three sites and we're always balancing insertion complications with infectious risk. And typically we have three sites. The femoral line is probably the highest infectious risk, but it's really tough to cause a pneumothorax in a femoral line. I guess if you push hard enough, you could. Um, the internal jugular is typically – has the lowest infectious uh, – lower infection rate than a femoral line, uh, lower pneumothorax rate than a subclavian, but it's not as well tolerated by the patient. However, it is likely the straightest shot, especially a right internal jugular. So it's typically used for volume access. A subclavian is usually associated with the lowest infectious rate but a higher rate of pneumothorax, but it is probably the best tolerated by awake patients because it doesn't hurt every time they turn their neck. Great. So we've got femoral, IJ, subclavian, and then we talked about pick lines, which uh, are placed perfectly but end up centrally. 
All right. So there are a lot of different kinds of central lines out there. Do you want to review those for us? Sure. So when we're in the intensive care unit or in the OR and we want to put in a line that can handle multiple infusions or potentially infusions and monitoring central venous pressure, we'll typically put in smaller multi-lumen catheters. It's common to hear of a triple lumen being placed. And those are typically smaller lines, usually seven French triple lumen um, or smaller double lumen lines. And they're helpful in the ICU for giving medications that may not necessarily be compatible or medications that need their own ports. Um, So that is a very common type of access. But as we'll see in a bit, they tend to be rather slow. And I'll just say, I only learned the other day, I always had in my mind that a double lumen gave you a larger lumens for each of your two lumens than a triple lumen for all three of those lumens. And it turns out that's not true. The double lumen has two, I think, 16 gauge, and the triple lumen has a 16, and then I think an 18, two two 18s. That's right. So you actually have at least one of those lumens on a triple lumen is the same size as the two lumens in the double lumen. So you don't actually buy yourself a a larger lumen. And just remember that the 16 gauge port is the distal port in in a triple lumen central line. And so that's either 16 or 20 centimeters long. And so if you look at flow rates that are rated in a couple of studies, including one that we're publishing, um, it's slower than a 20-gauge peripheral IV. Right. So you hear that the patient has a 16 and you get excited and then you realize it's not really a 16. Right. Definitely not comparable to a peripheral 16. Good point. All right. So we've got triple lumens and double lumens. Um, As you said, what else? So we also have dialysis central lines. Um, They're usually two large lumens that have decently fast flow rates, typically faster than when we we can get through a peripheral line and they can either be put in temporarily or they can be placed in as tunneled lines. Some people call them a perm cath or a davol or something like that. Um, There are also what people will call trialysis central lines, which is a triple lumen dialysis line. That's two large lumens for dialysis as well as a third distal lumen, which can be used for either CVP monitoring or infusions. Right. Okay. So, the regular kind of triple lumen, double lumen for usually for just access, but not high rates of flow, the dialysis line for high rates of flow for dialysis. What else? And then there's also the introducer catheter. Hello. So an introducer is usually a very large lumen and it's called an introducer because it's used to introduce other catheters. So if you were putting in a PA catheter, You can't put in a PA catheter by itself. It needs to go through another catheter. And if you're putting in another type of catheter, say your um, interventional radiology colleagues or interventional cardiology colleagues are are placing catheter-directed thrombolysis, they'll often use an introducer as well. And so in our line of work, we typically tend to think of introducers as eight and a half or nine French introducers. But a lot of our colleagues in the cath lab will use five French or six French introducers and call them an introducer, which can often result in disappointment on our part. Uh, They are usually our fastest central lines when the introducers are used themselves. But if you put in a Swan-Gans catheter, which is seven and a half French through an eight and a half French line, it actually drops the flow rate very significantly. Right. And that's important to realize. Um, So the introducer that we use the most, we call a cordis, right? That's right. So that's like a a cordis is an introducer, like a post-it is a self-adhesive sticky note, or scotch is a tape. Right. Different Uh, kind of scotch. Right. Totally. So that is pretty synonymous. Um, All right. Are there other specialized catheters that we want to mention? 
So there definitely are. There are, are cooling catheters which have balloons that have circulated saline or uh, sterile water that are circulated within the balloons and you control the temperature of the circulated saline. The idea is that for patients who were trying to induce either uh, targeted temperature management after cardiac arrest or potentially um, hypothermia for brain protection for other reasons, um, we can intravascularly cool them. It's probably the most efficient method of cooling patients, especially if they're on vasopressors and they're peripherally vasoconstricted. Um, there's also PA catheters, which are mostly monitoring catheters. Um, obviously, there could be an entire separate talk on PA catheters. However, if you look at the trends in the anesthesia world, there certainly seems to be a trend away from them for major abdominal surgeries, given um, some concern about uh, no change in outcomes and an increase in complication rates, and also the availability and advances in TEE. Yeah, absolutely. And I discussed uh, PA catheters in an entire episode with uh, Dr. Glenn Whitman uh, quite a ways back. But if you are interested, feel free to search uh, on ACRAC for that uh, episode if you want to hear more. All right. So let me just ask you before we move on from central lines, uh, we, we kind of went over, I guess, early on the different indications. Uh, we mentioned, obviously, the kind of case, the surgeon, et cetera. Um, are there certain things that, that make you think, all right, this is for this, I need a central line? It's very hit or miss. Um, there are certain absolutes. If you think that the patient's going to require high-dose vasopressors and not just in the operating room but postoperatively and they're going to need a central line for the ICU, more as a courtesy and also as a prophylaxis against infiltration of IVs, I will strongly consider putting in a central line at the beginning of the procedure. Um, if you think that the patient's going to end up needing nutritional support and they have difficult vascular access, you might as well put in the tripolumin in the OR rather than putting in a 24 and then leaving it to be someone else's job. Yeah, um, although I will say uh, we, for a long time here, were not allowed to give peripheral, uh, to give a total TPN through um, a tripolumin. We now are, but we weren't able to for a while. And so I would encourage people check your own hospital's policies. If you're thinking, oh, I want to put this in both because I'd love to have the access in the OR and I think they're going to need nutritional support post-op, make sure if you put a triple limit in that, that they'll be able to use that in the ICU for TPN. If not, then uh, that you may want to do a double lumen. And there are also certain situations in which hospital policy may or may not um, play in, in favor. So where I did my residency, patients could not go to the floor if they had an introducer catheter in place, but they could go to the floor with a dialysis catheter. So we did a lot of staged spinal surgeries. And so if patients needed large vascular access for their spinal surgeries, but we knew that they were going to be going to the floor or step down and then come back to the OR a day or two later, it didn't make sense for us to put in an introducer and then have to take it out in the PACU and then put another one in two days later. So I've actually, uh, throughout residency, I think I put in more um, dialysis catheters in patients with normal renal function than in patients on dialysis. Interesting. All right. But obviously that depends on the system in which you work. Exactly. And we would encourage you, don't place any lines unless you know your institution's policies on lines um, for sure. All right. So, you know, obviously central lines, if you can't get peripheral lines, that makes it really easy. You uh, would then need to place a central line. Um, and for the things that you mentioned, high-dose pressors, need for uh, access in a difficult uh, patient post-op, uh, or really any concern, uh, I think that this is going to be a, a seriously hemodynamic um, uh, in hemodynamically intense case in terms of the swings, in terms of the fluid that will be involved. Uh, I 
if I know that this is a case where the patient's likely to lose a lot of blood, need a lot of resuscitation, going to get a lot of fluid, and therefore potentially develop a lot of edema, I am reluctant to use peripheral IVs unless they are long and really secure. Because even if it's in at the beginning, that edema can just pull it right out. And you really, there's nothing worse than losing your access in the middle of a case where you're trying to transfuse and give pressors. Agreed. All right. So what kind of rapid infusion systems are there out there that people should know about? So big picture about rapid infusion systems. When you're giving large volumes of anything, it's important to make sure that, that you're not exposing the patient to undue harm. Obviously, there's a, a upside, which is potentially resuscitating your patient. But if you make your patient hypothermic, coagulopathic, and acidemic, that's probably not ideal. So we want to make sure that fluids are warmed and that we're minimizing the risks of negative outcomes. So I put in that category infiltrated or non-functional IVs and the detection of those um, infiltrated or non-functional IVs. Also, the potential to deliver venous air especially um, inadvertent venous air embolism. And also when we think about things like transfusion-associated cardiac overload and very high pressures in the venous system can potentially cause venous or right atrial rupture. Yeah. So we have lots of different equipment available for our use. Um, the most common uh, at institutions that I've worked at is the Ranger fluid warmer. So it's typically unpressurized, but it's excellent at efficiently warming fluid over a wide variety of flow rates. The standard Ranger cassette has a maximum flow rate of 125 mLs a minute, but the high flow has up to 500 mLs a minute of flow rate, and it also has an air filter that's after the warmer for any gas that comes out of solution when blood or blood products are warmed. Um, the standard has a passive air trap that will fill up by itself, whereas the high flow has an active air trap that expels air. Um, sometimes I scare our residents by testing the air trap and giving 20 cc's of air uh, before the warmer, uh, most of them, the, pa the residents have strokes, but most of the patients do not. That's good. We wouldn't want to. <laughs> I'm going to have to just now go on, on uh, record here as saying that we don't give our residents or our patients strokes. Um, <laughs> most, most people frown on that. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's say that you have uh, the low flow. Uh, you only get a passive air uh, trap. What does that mean? If people aren't sure they have a low flow, uh, one is going to catch air in a different way. Tell me a little more about the difference. So the, the passive air trap just means that it only has about 10 cc's of air uh, or of space with which the air can occupy. And that means that if you decide that you want to um, pressurize a bag of fluid and the bag of fluid has 30 or 40 or 50 cc's of air in it and all that air goes through the warmer – with a passive air trap, it only has a certain amount of capacity, and then the air is just going to keep going. So it's very helpful for getting out small micro bubbles, okay. but it's not helpful for large um, air emboli. And Whereas, the active one will actually like pull the air out and keep right. on pulling. That's right. Okay, interesting. Um, we also have the hotline. The hotline is also an unpressurized device, but it's got a countercurrent heat exchange. So it surrounds the fluid path with continuously circulating warm fluids. And the great part about it is that it has very little dead space. You can connect up the end of your hotline directly to the IV. So it's useful when you don't want to overload or specifically for pediatric patients or patients who are very fluid sensitive. The dead space from spiking a bag with a traditional blood administration drip set all the way to the end of the high-flow ranger tubing is about 150 mLs. And so if your average bag of blood is 250 to 300 mLs, half of that unit is going to be in the warmer 
even when the bag is empty. Interesting. And so the ranger may not necessarily be helpful in those cases, whereas something with little dead space like a hotline may actually be more helpful. The hotline doesn't have um, an air trap, and so there may be more potential for Venus air embolism, but it, uh, it is very helpful for its dead space. Okay. How about – you've mentioned these are unpressurized. Do we have any pressurized options? Yeah. So the, the oldest school one is a, a level one, and a level one just has a Y set, a standard blood set looking device, um, and then has pressurized chambers on the top. Just know that you can't pressurize cell saver bags. They will explode in there. Good to um, know. It's, uh, every CA1 has done it. Um, and it has two pressurized chambers, and it has an air filter that's distal to the warmer. So it will pressurize anything. It will automatically increase the pressure to 300 millimeters of mercury and just push, which means that if your IV is infiltrated, there's no way to monitor line pressures with a level one. It's an efficient warming device, and it's efficient at getting out small air bubbles. But there is a potential for venous air embolus. It will just keep squeezing. And there's also a really big problem in that if your IV is infiltrated, it will just keep pushing until the pressure is over 300 millimeters of mercury. All right. Interesting. So that's the old school. What's the new school? So the new school is is two different devices. One's called a Belmont and one's called a Thermocore. Um, the Belmont is pressurized and so it can measure line pressures distal to the pressurization. It also has an active de-airing system and it heats using magnetic induction. The maximum flow rate through the Belmont is, depending on the model, you have either 500 or 750 mLs a minute. And it has a standard Y set, but it also has a large three-liter bucket for mixing blood products. So if you're hanging multiple bags of blood products at once, you can put them all in the bucket. It doesn't need to be de-aired, and you can hang multiple bags at a time. It sort of looks like an octopus with all the things hanging up off it. And so it's very helpful as a device because it will measure the pressure of an infusion, and so it can detect infiltrated IVs um, before you uh, encounter a real problem. The other great thing about a Belmont is that if you have a cell saver that's continuously running, you can just leave the cell saver bag connected to one of the Belmont spikes, and every time the cell saver bag fills up, it automatically goes back into the Belmont. Yeah, that's that's a great technique. Uh, Dave, let me ask you. So you, you got all this blood product sitting in this bucket. Do you have to worry about it clotting? So yes, people will say that you shouldn't fill it up and leave it in for a long period of time. Um, I typically will end up just shaking the bucket every few minutes if it's not actively moving. But I also try to um, only spike products if I'm actually going to use them. Yep. That's both helpful for um, the blood system as a whole in terms of decreasing waste, but it's also helpful for um, decreasing infectious risk and clotting and all that fun stuff. Yeah, sounds good. And then you mentioned there's also a thermocore. Yeah, there's a thermocore. It's a newer device that's similar to a Belmont but has an even higher flow rate with even less dead space. The flow rate maximum through a thermocore is about 1,200 mLs a minute. Um, there have been some case reports of right atrial rupture because of how fast it flows. At Hopkins, we only have the Belmonts. Interesting. Okay. We want to avoid right atrial rupture. All right. How about factors that impact flow? This is some really interesting stuff. You mentioned a little bit before about the width, the radius, the length. Well, let's get into that a little more. Tell me what, what are, what's interesting stuff? What, are what should people know about these factors that impact flow? So I remember I was a, a resident and I was called to the medical ICU to intubate a patient. Um, and the patient had an, an upper GI bleed. It was a liver patient. And uh, where I trained the, the – probably like most of you, it was two 18-gauge IVs or bigger. 
And so I went to go ask the ICU team where the patient's two 18-gauge IVs were, and uh, I was pointed to a double lumen pick line, which was two 18-gauge IVs. And that, that is technically correct, but not exactly helpful for volume resuscitation. So my team, we wanted to establish some facts about what lines were actually fastest and different factors that impact flow. Um, so we decided to do an in vitro study where we looked at different catheter flow rates through 15 different catheters, through four different types of tubing to get an idea for what the maximal flow rates were through different lines using different types of equipment. Then, since that wasn't enough misery, we also decided that we wanted to connect up different equipment to our uh, IVs, so stopcocks, uh, extension sets, needleless connectors, and see how those impacted flow as well. Interesting. So what did you find? So we found that our standard IV infusion set that we use at Hopkins has a maximum flow rate of a little less than 200 mLs a minute. So what that means for us is that if you put in a 14-gauge peripheral IV, but you use a regular IV infusion set, that's like taking a Ferrari engine and putting it inside of the body of a Camry. It may be there, but it's not really doing you a whole lot. And so then we checked and we saw that our everything from a Rick line all the way down to about a 14 or a 16 flowed at the same speed when we used our standard drip set. And in order to get faster flow rates, you really needed to use specialized tubing. So then we looked at our blood tubing and our blood tubing can only flow at about 300 mLs a minute. So any catheter that flows faster than a 300 mLs a minute, which is anything bigger than a 14, so things like a dialysis catheter, an 8.5 French or a 9 French introducer, a Rick line, they're all the same speed if you use blood tubing. Mm -hmm. And then we looked at our Belmonts, and the Belmont tubing was the only one that actually showed very high flow rates. And so this was not a Belmont connected to the pressurizer. This was just a Belmont dripping to gravity. And we got flow rates of about 800 mLs a minute through a Rick line, about 600 mLs a minute through an 8.5 inch cordis, about four to 500 mLs a minute through a dialysis catheter. And then the next slowest was a 14-gauge IV, which got us about 350 mLs a minute. And then much slower than that is everything else. One other drastic thing that we realized is that if we put in a single lumen catheter, just a regular CVP monitoring catheter, Inside of our cortis, it slowed it down to almost the speed of an 18-gauge IV. Wow. That makes a huge difference. And I think people don't think about that, right? They just put in a cortis and they say, we've got a cortis. Let's put in a slick, not realizing that takes away quite a lot of the flow. That's right. And so if you put in a cortis, that's great and very helpful. You can get about 600 to 700 mLs a minute of flow. But if you put in a cortis and then you put in a slick which is a seven French line, um, it will drop your flow down to less than 200 mLs a minute. So it's a factor of three. Yep. And then if you put in an even larger catheter, like a Swan-Gans catheter, that will drop it even more. Wow. Okay. That's great to know. What is it about the Belmont tubing that makes it capable of handling such higher flows? Is it, is it has a larger radius? Is it made of different material? Yeah. So the diameter is much larger in the tubing itself. Um, and it also has fewer junctions. And it's thought... Um, it's obviously I'm not a, a huge physics flow nerd, um, but we want fewer junctions and fewer areas of fluid turning in order to augment 
um, laminar flow as opposed to turbulent flow. And so the Belmont tubing doesn't have a whole lot of the, the bells and whistles that a lot of our regular IV tubing does with one-way valves and um, 10 different sites for rollerballs and uh, nine different sites for connections. It's just tubing. Yep. And it maximizes fast flow at the expense of stopcocks and injection ports. All right. So the type of tubing makes a big difference. What are some other factors? Uh, so a lot of other things that we don't typically think about um, include putting on um, stopcocks, um, three-in-one, what we call triple gangs, or separate IV extensions. So we looked at a regular blood drip set with no catheter attached to it, and we got about 400 mLs a minute of flow. When we added on our regular high-flow stopcocks, that didn't change a whole lot. But when we added on multiple IV extensions, it cut down the flow by about half, so from about 400 to a little over 200 mLs a minute. And when we added a needleless connector, some call that the clave, it dropped our flow rate down to less than 100 mLs a minute, even with no catheter on the drip set. And so if you put a needleless connector on even a very large IV, it will drop it down to between the speed of an 18 and a 20-gauge peripheral. Wow. And imagine multiple claves. That's right. So um, it's very helpful to put on claves in the ICU for things like um, potentially infectious reasons or decrease the venous air embolism risk if there's a catheter that, that gets disconnected, decrease potentially bleeding out if a catheter is – if a, a line is disconnected. But it really is detrimental to flow. Um, so this has changed our practice. Now when I have patients who are coming back from the ICU, they all have claves on their lines, which is great for a lot of reasons. But um, when we're taking them back from the ICU, I will take off the clave and mm. just connect up directly. Great. And do you do that for any central line or only for a large volume line like a Cordis or a, a, a RIC? So if I'm putting in a – uh, if I'm if I'm connecting up a triple lumen, each of the lumens is very slow already. The clave is unlikely to affect it significantly, yeah. uh, but definitely for a cordis, uh, definitely for a rickline, um, and in our institution, thankfully we have pre-op nurses who will put in all of our peripheral IVs, which is great. But they put on a J loop with a clave at the end of it, and yep. so if you have an 18, it's great. Your flow rate is over 100 mLs a minute, and you can pressurize it to be even more. But uh, if you have a J loop on it then it drops it down to less than that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What about viscosity? You've mentioned that a few times. What role does that play? So we also measured the viscosity of multiple different products um, and specifically talked about blood, FFP, uh, albumin. We measured head of starch because we managed to find some in the hospital. <laughs> um, and we noticed that the viscosity of blood – Typically, the hematocrit of a unit of stored PRBCs is somewhere in the 50 to 70 range, and the viscosity of blood at 4 degrees Celsius at a hematocrit of 60 is approximately eight times that of normal saline. Um, FFP is a little over uh, one times, is about 1.1 or 1.2 times that of, of saline, um, and head of starch is not much more than that, neither is albumin, but by far the greatest viscosity is PRBCs. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you really see, as the hematocrit increases, increase in viscosity and therefore a decrease in flow, I would imagine. Right, and that's, and that's why a lot of people, um, when they're taught to give very large volume um, transfusions, will dilute their bags of blood with... Uh, IV fluids. Important things to remember about that. Um, avoid calcium-containing fluids like lactated ringers because of the potential for um, calcium-induced clotting. Um, but also, 
I would argue that if you're massively transfusing a patient and you want to dilute out the blood, maybe you should do it with FFP rather than with crystalloid. Um, And so a lot of what I typically end up doing in massive transfusion situations is either mixing it all up in a Belmont or switching off PRBC and FFP and giving one-to-one so that I get faster flow rate with the FFP. Makes a ton of sense. All right, Dave, if you had to give people some take-home conclusions, what would you say? So I would say first things first, this stuff is really important. We don't really talk about it that much, but it's one that's uh, central uh, to what we do. Um, We care a lot about details, but we tend to care a lot less about vascular access. Um, Obviously, in in the ICU, we care about central line-associated bloodstream infections and our desire to remove these central vascular access devices quickly. Um, But it's important to think about it in the OR as well. And it's also important to remember that there's a Goldilocks level, right? I I like big access, but I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't put in a RIC for a cataract. Jed might disagree. Um, But too little is probably not helpful to the patient, right? You probably need at least two 18s to do a Whipple, but you probably don't need a 14 for a cataract. And this is a tough balance. It depends on your risk tolerance, depends on... Whether the patient's arms are out depends on uh, a lot of things like your potential for rapid blood loss, et cetera. Um, I would encourage you, if you're a learner, if there's a catheter or a system you've never used it before, I would encourage you to use it in a controlled setting or in a simulation setting. It's always better to have your first time using a device not be in an urgent or emergent situation. Absolutely. And for residents, I'll tell you, it's helpful to place all of these lines under ultrasound just for nothing other than your own ultrasound-guided skills. So you can practice all different techniques. Use a regular angiocath. Use a micropuncture kit. Use an arrow A-line kit and use the guide wire to place a venous line. Um, Especially in high-risk populations, it's helpful to place ultrasound-guided peripherals. It can save your patient potentially an IO or potentially um, way worse. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I tell residents that all the time, especially in places like the ICU or uh, putting a second line in in the OR. If you have the ultrasound there anyway, you know, think about using it. There is a line. Same thing. We have this feeling that it's, you know, better. It's like not, it's not like not wanting to use an oral airway for mask ventilation. People don't want to use the ultrasound for lines because they feel like it's kind of better to do it without or it shows your prowess more. And I disagree. I think actually getting really good at ultrasound-guided line placement is a skill that takes development and uh, and is worth practicing as much as possible. And it's a skill that takes development, but it's also a skill that you don't want to learn when uh, there's a very high cost of failure. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Dave, this has been great, really interesting stuff. Uh, we'll certainly, once that paper of yours is published uh, that you referred to here, we'll put that link up. Uh, on the site. I think it'll be really interesting for people to see. Uh, And uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. All right. That was great. Really interesting stuff. I think the work that Dave and his colleagues have done uh, is really interesting, and I hope to see it published soon. Uh, Let us know what you thought. Uh, Go to the website, ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment, let people know what you think, and others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating there. It really helps other people find the show if they're looking for an anesthesia-related podcast. Of course, you are welcome to also consider supporting the making of the show by going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. And, of course, you can also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. 
and leave a donation that way if you prefer. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Thanks to Brian Park for the outlines on some of the episodes. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is composed by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo. Uh, it's fantastic. He's fantastic. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. Also, check out our new logo and website look. Go to ACRAC.com. See what you think. Let us know. And if you happen to have talent in the logo or website realm and you think, you know, gee, I could do it better, let me know. I would love to hear about it. I have no talent and uh, would very much be open to uh, checking yours out and getting you involved. All right. That is it for today. Thanks so much for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Dave Berman, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.